Simple Suttas, a podcast on original Buddhism. Visit us at simplesuttas.wordpress.com. I had a, a positive response to a little bit more casual Q&A type podcast the last couple of podcasts, so I thought I would continue that. Just taking questions and uh, trying to uh, explain them in a a little bit uh, low-key manner. So uh, the first uh, couple of podcasts, we're talking about meditation. Uh, The next question is, uh, can you please explain dependent origination uh, in a way that's a little bit more clear? Uh, That is absolutely right. Most of the time when you hear uh, a discussion or read about dependent origination, uh, they they spend the first uh, 10 minutes telling you how complicated, how intricate it is, and then spend the rest of the talk uh, proving it. (laughs) But I don't actually think it needs to be uh, quite as confusing as all that. So here's what I'd like to do. Let me just start by giving you the basic lowdown. Then take another pass where we have a little bit more detail and also talk about uh, some practical uh, uses for this idea. And then I'll end with a little bit more detailed explanation if you're interested, and if you're not, then just uh, just skip it because it's the uh, it's really the message that counts more than the uh, the fine details and the poly vocabulary and so on. So uh, uh, let, let me just start by saying that I, there are a lot of things that you hear about dependent origination that are not really true. Um, they, they may be true on their own right, but they have nothing to do with dependent origination. So, uh, for example, I, I read actually a scholarly article a few weeks ago that uh, claimed that dependent origination is all about the physical process of rebirth and how this is where the soul comes into the body and this is when this, you know, the, 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 the fetus is developing in such and such a way. It's ridiculous. It absolutely has uh, no connection with what's actually in the, uh, in the teaching itself. And, uh, uh, you know, no wonder people are, are confused. Uh, you'll also hear uh, that it's, it's a linear uh, sort of teaching that describes how a person is born, goes about their life, and then is born again, uh, at the, the so-called three lifetimes model, which also makes no sense. It's just not how the document works. It's all based on, uh, you know, later writing about the text instead of going to look at the suttas themselves. And, uh, you know, simple suttas are all about the, the original teachings. So that's what, uh, what I want to focus on. So uh, the basic understanding of Paticca Samapada, uh, dependent origination, uh, is just simply an explanation of part of the Four Noble Truths, right? Basically anything in Buddhism, Eightfold Path, uh, whatever it is, is just an explanation of the parts of the Four Noble Truths. Everything comes from that original document. So Paticca Samapada is kind of a, a more careful look at the first two Uh, noble truths. That's really what it's all about. Basically, it describes in detail why desire, why craving leads to suffering and rebirth. That's it. So here's the the two-cent version of that explanation. If you misunderstand the nature of experience, then you will crave for certain kinds of experiences, and that craving leads to actions which lead to suffering and rebirth. That's it. When you misunderstand experience, you crave certain kinds of experiences. That craving leads you to act in ways that bring about your own suffering and ultimately rebirth. That's the basic message. Now, we can drill an extra level deeper, but uh, that's the kind of model of understanding. Now, what's special about dependent origination is that it drills in a little bit to how that process works, to how it is that we get fooled by the nature of experience. 
Okay, so let's drill down one more level. What is it about experience that we get wrong? So this is one of the kind of primary ideas of Buddhist uh, philosophy, that we have an experience and naively we assume whatever it is that we experience to be absolutely true, right? This is how things are. We take our objective, uh, sorry, our subjective experience to be the objective truth, right? But the Buddha said that's not necessarily the case. Now, there's the other side of that as well, in which uh, people say, well, there is no objective truth. There's nothing to that. It's all subjective, right? The Buddha didn't really say that either. Instead, as, as we'll see in detail later, if you're interested, that actually uh, experience is the swirling together of that subjective and objective in a way that's very difficult to tease apart uh, when you're in the midst of it, right? And that's how this confusion comes about. Now, what is that confusion? The confusion is that any experience we have, we immediately have this reaction to it. That's a pleasant experience. That's an unpleasant experience. That's a neutral experience. So that's the uh, the, the Buddhist way of looking at it. Now, this is true, uh, first of all, in your own experience, right? You, you immediately, uh, uh, you know, touch the water as it's coming out of the faucet and, wow, that's perfect. Wow, that's terrible. Or, hmm, fine, I don't care, right? Uh, but it's true at, at, at all levels, right? Uh, in, in psychology, when they study uh, some of these things, trying to figure out what's the, uh, the natural human reaction to something, they often study this with babies. Uh, babies, even very small babies, before they can speak, before they can walk, will turn towards things that they like and turns away, turn away from things uh, that they don't like, right? So <laughs> this works actually for uh, people's faces, that uh, babies will turn toward attractive faces, faces that adults rate as attractive, and turn away from unattractive faces. Uh, in music, uh, when they play a, a beautiful consonant interval, like uh, this major third, babies will turn toward that beautiful consonant interval. And when they play dissonant intervals, like this major seventh, babies will turn away from it. So even at that you know, tender age, uh, immediately ha they have these reactions turning toward the pleasant and away from the, uh, uh, the unpleasant. Uh, this, is, this is actually easier to see in, in children and uh, also in animals. You know, uh, my dog will get so incredibly uh, excited uh, over a treat and uh, you know, get so uh, you know, incredibly upset and hurt if it uh, runs into a thorn bush or something like that. Uh, and the, the reaction is, is immediate and complete. There's no high hiding in the way that there is with adults, but we still have those reactions. Uh, it's just that they're hidden, uh, both from other people and often from ourselves, you know, e even at the most subtle level. Uh, you know, if, uh, you know, a, a, a Dhamma practitioner gives a talk and someone says, what a lovely talk, you know, there's that instant uh, feeling of, mm, isn't that wonderful? I'm gathering up my utils. Uh, right, and uh, it, on the very subtle level, when you realize, oh, I've misunderstood this deep concept, there's that feeling of uh, that, that that dark, unpleasant feeling that you want to turn away from. So uh, th these things are ever present, right, at almost all levels of uh, of practice. So uh, how does this relate? Well, one thing that it relates is um, is something that is not often spoken about in Western Dhamma circles. Uh, how does the Buddha suggest that we deal with this on the spiritual path? And uh, one thing that he suggests is to intentionally turn away from a lot of that stimulation. 
right? So uh, we often hear, I, I think, that just go about your normal life, but then bring a, a spirit of non-judgmental awareness to all things. Now, that's fine. Uh, there are some things in life that you can't uh, get away from, but that's not actually what the Buddha suggested, at least for someone who's engaged in the spiritual life. So uh, from the Buddha's perspective, if you're not really deeply engaged in the spiritual life, then go about your wonderful middle-class uh, existence, enjoying the pleasures of, uh, of life. The Buddha li literally said that, that, uh, that that's how a person should live that's not um, deeply engaged in spiritual practice. But for one engaged in spiritual practice, he recommends the opposite, which is to say intentionally turning away from uh, uh, the pleasant and the unpleasant aspects of the, the normal householder life. So if you've ever been on retreat, you might have taken the eight precepts. So the first uh, five precepts are kind of the moral precepts, things like um, do not kill, do not steal, do not lie, etc. But the, the next three are not moral precepts, right? They're, they're doing something else. The, uh, the other three are to uh, not eat after noon, to uh, refrain from dancing, singing music, going to entertainments, wearing garlands, perfumes, uh, cosmetics, and to uh, not lie on a high or luxurious bed. Right? So th these things are not moral causes, right? There's nothing morally wrong with putting on makeup. Right? Uh, the idea here, rather, is to turn away from uh, as many experiences as possible, to make a life uh, that is as simple as possible. So this is the kind of thing that one might do if you ordain. Uh, it's the kind of thing that one might do on retreat. Uh, or it's the, the, the kind of thing that one might do uh, from time to time um, in ordinary life as a way of uh, intensifying spiritual practice for a short while. But what's the idea there? What's the idea? The idea is that uh, for an ordinary person, an un unenlightened person, it's extremely easy to have our heads turned by all of the delightful and horrible experiences of the world, right? That we immediately get lodged into wanting this and not wanting that. And the more powerful experiences are, uh, the more they have the ability to turn our heads. So as a path of training, you uh, set aside those particularly exciting kinds of experiences as a way of developing the mind to not be turned, to not be affected, to not be ruled by our desire. That when you uh, are carried away by your desire for this and that, then you're less free in the sense that you're no longer acting necessarily in the way that you want to act or the way that's best to act, but rather just in those primal kinds of uh, ways that can get you sex, can get you food, can get you uh, the things that you want, and, uh, and avoid conflict, avoid all of the things that you, uh, that you don't want. Okay, so th this is the, the teaching on Paticca Samapada, right? So it's a bit different than uh, some of the teachings you've heard before, but it fits very easily and smoothly in with the rest of the, the Buddhist path. So if, uh, if that's to the extent that you're interested, I suggest you, you stop now. But if you like, I'll just go in and look at the, uh, at the traditional 12 steps. Because uh, from, from my perspective, it took me a very long time to kind of get my arms around these 12 steps, these 12 uh, factors of dependent origination. And uh, so if you're interested in learning a little bit more, I'll, I'll talk about that now. So uh, there are different, the Buddha talked about dependent origination in uh, many different ways with different number of factors, but the, uh, the longest, the most complete, the kind of classic uh, set of factors that are used are these uh, su supposed 12 links of dependent uh, origination. So I'll skip around a little bit, but it starts uh, with, uh, first let me just say a word about the order. Right? So uh, 
if you take this to be order in terms of one length directly aiming to the next length, link in this chain, sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. Frankly, sometimes it's very confusing. Uh, if you take it to be in chronological order, it really makes no sense at all. Instead, I, I would suggest that you think of it uh, something more like a, like a, a weed. Right? So if you, if you take a weed, uh, you've got the roots, you've got the stem, you've got the blossom, uh, and these things interact, right? They're related to each other. You need the leaves in order for the, the roots to grow. But uh, at the base is the most important. If you find one of those really big weeds in your yard and you just chop off the blossom then you haven't gotten rid of the weed. Right? If you chop off the stem, then it'll take longer for the weed to come back, but it, it most certainly will. Uh, you have to really get at the root in order to really get rid of the weed. So you can think about this something like uh, building up from the base up toward the, uh, uh, the, the blossom with the base, the root, being ignorance, avidya. Right? Lack of wisdom, lack of understanding about the nature of experience. And with the blossom, the very top, being death. Right? So if we're looking to, uh, to go beyond death, then we have to get rid of ignorance. And everything in between are the, uh, uh, the factors that lead us from one to the other. So I, I said I'd skip around a, a, a little bit. Uh, let, me, uh, let me do this. So I, I mentioned the beginning, I mentioned the end. Let me start with the ending because I think in a way it's the easiest to understand. Uh, the last few factors here are uh, bhava, jati, and jara marana. Uh, bhava is the process of becoming. Uh, jati is rebirth, and jara marana is uh, aging and death. Right. So this is the ending. This is that blossom. Uh, if we're ignorant, we go through these chains. At the end of the day, we're going to rebecome. We're going to be born again. We're going to get old, get sick, suffer, and die. Right. So that's that's the result. Now, uh, how, what, what's the process in between? How does ignorance lead to those things? So let's uh, circle back, uh, or sorry, let's go back one uh, additional step here. So there's another few steps in the middle, uh, Vedana, Tanha, and Upadana, which also should seem very uh, familiar. So Vedana is feeling. That's that pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant uh, feeling I was talking about a moment ago. Tanha is craving, and Upadana is clinging. So maybe you can see how these relate as well, right? If you you start with those feelings, right? Oh, you know, I want uh, I want more pleasure, I want more life. So you crave for these things, for you you cling to life. Clinging to life causes you to be reborn, uh, and rebirth will lead to aging, sickness, and death, and so on. Right. So 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 far so good. Does that make sense? It's that craving that leads, the feeling that leads to craving, that leads to clinging, that leads to that whole uh, cycle of samsara rebirth. Again, I, I think it makes a great deal of sense. So let's go back now to the beginning, right? So how does ignorance lead to uh, feeling of all things? The, the second step is sankara. Uh, translated as karmic formations, <laughs> which is uh, uh, a bit uh, a bit confusing, but basically it just means uh, anything that you think, uh, say, or do. Right? It's it's just actions. It's just free will. So this the, the first two steps can be said like this: uh, when you act out of ignorance, then those actions will lead to all the way over to feeling, craving, clinging, and rebirth, right? So acting out of ignorance will lead to craving, will lead to clinging, will lead to samsara. Okay. Now, the middle few here, I think, are the ones that are the most confusing. That's why I, uh, I uh, come to them last. 
The step after sankhara, number three, is vijnana, consciousness. Now, how could it be that actions, karmic formation, sankhara, actions, decisions, lead to consciousness? Uh, I've asked... I've asked this to many people and never gotten a satisfactory answer. And I think the reason is because uh, the causality here is not so direct as all that. I think it's a mistake to say that karmic formations, that sankhara, lead to consciousness. It doesn't make sense. Instead, I think what you have to do is you have to take the next few steps sort of together. Right? Uh, I, I, I uh, would... Uh, cite a uh, kind of relationship in the Eightfold Path, right? If you look at the Eightfold Path, it begins with right view and ends with uh, right samadhi, you know, uh, and, and there's a directionality there that makes sense. But there's a few in the middle that don't seem to really come in any particular order. Uh, when you have right speech, right action, and right livelihood, why is it that right action comes before right livelihood and so on? They, they kind of come together. They're the moral precepts. They make sense there in the middle, but the exact order there is not so important. They all sort of go together. Uh, right speech goes with right action, goes with right livelihood. I think it's a similar kind of thing here that the directionality is not so important with these middle few steps. Instead, they all sort of go together and they can be understood together, uh, but when you try to tease them apart, then it gets uh, overly complicated. I think it's why people are, uh, get especially confused with this. So uh, let me just uh, mention these four together. You've got vijnana, consciousness, namarupa, uh, usually translated as name and form, ayatana, which are the uh, six sense bases, and bhasa, which means a uh, contact. Now, all of that's a little bit, you know, technical, but basically uh, it, it's uh, a breakdown of the different aspects that physically lead to experience. Now, you might say, what is the point of all of that? But hey, you asked for it by coming to the technical part of the talk here. So I have to live with that. <laughs> Nevertheless, I, I think it's actually pretty interesting. So uh, here you have consciousness, name and form, the six sense bases, and sense impression. The idea here is that here are the components, right? So uh, you have uh, the actual uh, organs of the senses, your eyes, nose, tongue, and so on. You have the neurological components that interpret those uh, uh, those sense impressions right you have consciousness itself which is kind of the the screen on which this is played and then you have name and form which is it's a, an obscure term, and nobody can say with absolute certainty uh, what it means. It's somewhat been lost to the, the mists of time. But the basic idea is that it's the, the intertwining of the physical realm with the mental realm. It's the place where they come together in whatever mysterious way. Uh, so uh, that, that's the understanding here. So if you put those things uh, together, all of those different aspects, consciousness, uh, the neurological component of the senses, the physical component of the senses, and then that coming together of the external reality with the internal subjective uh, reality, then putting all of those things together, that in and of itself that is the nature of experience. And that is the thing which, if misunderstood, leads to craving, leads to clinging, leads to suffering and rebirth. Okay, so these are my uh, comments on uh, dependent...
So to summarize, the foundation is ignorance. When you act out of ignorance, ignorance of the nature of experience, that experience is simply a physical process, that coming together of the internal and external world, that objective and the subjective, and it leads to this immediate response, this immediate feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, uh, or neutral. When you react unthinkingly to those stimuli, then that leads to craving, Craving for things to be this way or not that way leads to clinging, which brings about rebirth, suffering, death, and all these other bad things. So how do you escape from this mess? And uh, part of the idea can be that you can attack uh, this chain in any of the different spots and have some success, right? Uh, now, once you get to the, the end state, uh, rebirth uh, and uh, aging and death, it's too late. Nothing can be done. So where do you attack it? Do you attack it at the, uh, at the craving point? Uh, maybe, maybe. Uh, but doing that is a little bit the equivalent of chopping off a weed in the middle, right, at the stem. Right? If you do that, it's going to simply return. Uh, can you attack it at the point of, uh, of the physical sensations? Well, this is interesting because part of the answer is uh, yes, you can, right? So the Buddha absolutely encourages someone in the path of spiritual practice to turn away from sensations that are too powerful as a way of uh, escaping that uh, very, very powerful feelings that can disrupt the mind. Right? So the idea is to live simply in a way where you can observe the mind in a more simple state. This is true, but it's not a perfect long-term solution. Right? It's not that you can simply shut out the rest of the world and that's good enough. You won't crave because you're not seeing those pleasant things. It's, it's a, um, a useful technique, but is not the complete solution. The complete, complete solution has to be the abandoning of ignorance. You have to be able to use those that spiritual practice, setting aside those strong feelings to engage in deep meditation to get to the root. Uh, if you want to truly put aside uh, vinyana, namarupa, ayatana, pasa, all of these aspects of, of experience, then it's only in deep meditation that you can really get away from those things and see uh, the absolute root, see what, uh, uh, what life is like without those external experiences. So uh, no mysteries here, no surprises. It's the spiritual path itself which can lead to the disruption of this uh, uh, path of dependent origination. But seeing into it deeply is, uh, is useful as a way of orienting you on the path. Okay, these are my thoughts on dependent origination. If you have uh, any other questions, uh, please, I'd be very interested to hear what you uh, want to hear about. And thank you for listening.